You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Mary Joyce, author of Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains, and Cherokee Little People Were Real, is standing by. She joins me for the full two hours. Before we talk underground military bases, just a reminder, my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, drops three days a week, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, drops every Wednesday at midnight Eastern. That's part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. Just Google it. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Mary Joyce has worked for two major metropolitan area newspapers as a writer, columnist, artist, Sunday magazine editor, and feature editor. On the side, she's written magazine articles and a number of books. And currently, she's editor of the Sky Ships Over Cashiers website, which features cutting-edge topics. Hey, Mary Joyce, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing fine. Hope you are, too. Tell me a little bit about the Smoky Mountains and your your region of North Carolina. Okay, I live in western North Carolina where all the mountains are. And when I moved here in 1998, I had no idea how many wonderful, intriguing topics there are hidden in these mountains. And you and I have talked about some of them, like the little pe- Cherokee Little People, uh, we also have Bigfoot. We have the underground facilities, which I think is something you want to talk about today. Uh, and of course, we have UFOs. Well, let's let's talk about subterranean bases because people are talking about the possibility of a new Area 51 uh, right underfoot where you are. Uh, what is what is PARI? P A R I. What does that stand for? It stands for Pisca Astronomical Research. Institute, which is the reason everybody has nicknamed it Perry, P-A-R-I. And of the underground bases that I've written about, that is the oldest of the, the five that I've written about. And it's under the, technically under the Balsam Mountain Ridge, um, again, here in western North Carolina. Well, tell me about it. When, when did it open and, and what are they doing there? It started out many years ago as part of the Department of Defense and it was a satellite tracking station. Um, and then it has evolved, and um, it is now um, sold as an astronomical research institute. It's supposed to be strictly educational, but there's still very odd things that happen around there, including people in military uniforms that are sometimes uh, guarding the gate and sometimes aren't. Um, but I have been able to interview uh, people with high security clearance 
Um, and they unanimously tell me it is uh, a deep underground facility. Two of them have said it is six stories deep and that it's totally self-sufficient. It has electricity and water and uh, roadways. Um, and it's uh, very self-sufficient. Now, if it was as it has been described, kind of a, a how did you say it, an astro, an astrological or an astrophysicist's kind of laboratory? How did you describe it initially? Um, most of us around here uh, refer to it as a capstone cover. Uh, this is the kind of astronomy place that just um, basically is aimed at students or university-type researchers. Um, much of the heavy-duty equipment that has been there, all the different satellite dishes and things of that nature, most of them have been moved out once it ceased to be part of the Department of Defense. At least they say it's no longer part of that. Um, but there's so much strange activity. I was contacted at one point by uh, a man who'd had a supervisory position in the Air Force, and he and his uh, at least one of his buddies had been checking out all the area around Perry uh, before they contacted me. I think they'd been doing it for like maybe five or six months. And there, you know, it's just nice to get confirmation from more and more people who have that kind of background rather than just, you know, us ordinary folks who might not understand what's going on. And they said one thing that was very peculiar was uh, on one occasion when they went by the gate to go into the facility, there was a man in um, a SWAT uniform guarding the gate. And then other times that gate is wide open and people can come in. They do seem to discourage people from just showing up. Uh, at least at certain times, uh, and other times you can, you know, just ride into the facility. Have you been there? Uh, I have been to the gate. I actually, you might find this strange. I was warned not to go past the gate, and so I have been, um, I've gotten all my information inside from people who uh, have been inside. And um, as you may or may not know, I prefer also to be the one that brings the story rather than being the story. Right, right. Now, who told you, who warned you not to go past the gate, Mary? Um, I cannot tell you that part, but uh, I was warned that it would not be good because they know who I am and you might not want to be there. I have experienced things uh, even being close to the gate. Um, uh, on one occasion, I was in the car with uh, three other people, and as we got closer, we all began to get this real strange sensation in our heads, uh, kind of like the electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic effect. And it made you feel weird. And it made you want to get away from the place. And when we did leave the area, then that dissipated. A second time when I went there, and again, I was with other people, we all experienced the same, uh, same thing. I call it people repellent. Um, one of the um, uh, people with high security clearance that told me about this place uh, said that they have electromagnetic uh, energy they can um, shoot out from there. That apparently must be rather common because another place that I've written about is a facility beneath the Smoky Mountain National Park, 
And we've had people had the same experience getting close to where that place is. Well, that's interesting because electrogravitics, uh, that type of technology, which is some say is behind UFO propulsion, uh, is said to have that same type of effect. So is it possible that rather than they, they're having some sort of a deliberate people propellant system, as you call it, you're simply experiencing the propulsion system of the UFOs that may be stationed at that base? Um, I would have no way of knowing that. I can tell you that people that live in the area see quite a few UFOs. There is a lake to the west of the facility called Wolf Lake, and it has been reported that they've seen UFOs go in and out of that lake, which might be uh, a way of entering uh, that underground facility. Uh, as you know, the, the UFOs, some people like to call them also USOs, but they're the same thing. If they're impervious to the air, they're impervious to the water. Right, right. Uh, unidentified submersible objects. So, um, is that right? Is that, did I, is that the correct acronym, uh, USO? You're right on target. It's a term I don't use very often because I don't really think there's much distinction. Right, right. How big is Wolf Lake? I don't know if I can answer that. It's it's a, a nice sized lake, but not too big. How's that for an answer? Right, but but people report seeing flying discs, flying saucers uh, come out of and enter into this lake. That's correct. And uh, to get off on a slightly different tangent with this, there is one man that lives in the area, and he, as a young boy, lived in uh, the Brooksville area of Florida, which. Uh, at least in the past, has been a, a hot UFO spot. And when he was a boy, he was uh, abducted by a ship. It, his story was eventually made into a movie. And let's see, it was called The Flight of the Navigator. Uh, it's a delightful Oh, yes. I remember that movie. And it's based on, they certainly take it way beyond what he experienced. They made it much more, you know, dramatic and and, uh, you know, to make the movie interesting. But it was initially his experience that inspired that story, that movie, that story. Right, right. That sounds true. He lives now in that area uh, near Perry. And uh, I think his life has been strange ever since. Uh, he had an implant, uh, which bothered him a lot. And uh, he finally was able to find a dentist who was sympathetic to him. And the, uh, the dentist and has found the implant and took it out, and some of his problems disappeared after that. But he got to the point where he wouldn't report the UFOs anymore because uh, when he did, he found that his computers were shut down or totally destroyed, and it got very expensive just to replace computers. Uh, so he, he kind of clammed up as a source. But um, I thought it was very interesting. He went from the childhood experience uh, and then moved right into the Perry area. Right, right. So he was was he drawn to the area, or did he find himself in North Carolina simply by happenstance? I think it was. I think it was happenstance. Um, uh, in fact, I'm sure that's what it was. <clears throat> his his family has had uh, um, like, like old homesteads here, probably before they were in um, Florida, but I can't be sure of that. Now the the um, implant, uh, and I'm I'm, a, I'm of two minds on implants. One, we could be looking at some sort of a tracking device by 
uh, ET, uh, and and uh, this is sort of a common phenomena reported by abductees. Uh, but also we have the targeted individual who are being who are being targeted by some sinister uh, government force, perhaps hard to say. Uh, who do you think is responsible for these implants in this particular case when we're talking about Perry? Um, I don't know if we can ever be absolute on any of this. The more you learn about these subjects, the more muddled it gets and you see more possibilities. For example, I've gone from uh, years ago thinking that all UFOs were, were from somewhere else. I no longer feel that way. In fact, I think we're fooled a great deal by uh, UFOs that are uh, either designed by our military or um, I've come to believe that the uh, uh, Nazi groups, uh, Nazi people and the reptilians were in cahoots for a very long time and I've written about some of that. There's two articles I've posted uh, about Antarctica recently. In fact, if you're on the homepage of Skyships over Cashews, you'll see one, uh, you'll see two, one right after the other. One says Antarctica Volcanoes help the Nazi Nazis build secret base, and the other one is uh, Antarctica. Reptilian aliens help the Nazis, and it seems like so much science fiction. But the more you dig into this, you go, "Oh my God, this awful science fiction story may be more truth than we realize." The idea, the, the idea that reptilians maybe have always been here, and uh, when the when the uh, the Nazis. We're exploring the Antarctic as some place to sort of stash their war plunder. They they discovered this uh, reptilian civilization and they came to some sort of a uh, an agreement. I have I have the feeling that it was more likely that they were contacted by the uh, reptilians um, before the war. Um, you you I know you know about all these stories about the um, uh, Nazis having. A type of craft or UFO type craft uh, during World War II. Uh, this information from all the sources I can read is that um, that knowledge was provided by the reptilians. Uh, they may have been contacted that way first and then later uh, were allowed access to um, uh, the facilities beneath Antarctica. And it's very interesting because you think of Antarctica as just a big sheet of ice and snow. Um, they've been able to use, you know, advanced equipment, and they can see what lies beneath the ice. And there are uh, channels or rivers that are underneath that, and the most active volcanic ridge in the world is under the western part of Antarctica. And the uh, volcanoes have formed underground tubes and caverns, some of them very large, and the reptilians converted the uh, volcanic caverns into their under uh, sea or under uh, Antarctica facilities. Uh, once the Nazis teamed up with the reptilians, they were provided with some of the smaller caverns uh, for their own use. And that has been a place that they have been building um, uh, spacecraft 
uh, for decades now. Well, there's and, certainly a lot of interest, a lot of dignitaries going down to the Antarctica recently. Um, I think one of the, uh, the the patriarchs of the Orthodox Church was recently down there. Of course, uh, John Kerry, former Secretary of State, was recently down there. We'll uh, we'll pick this up on the other side. Mary Joyce is with us. We're discussing underground bases, subterranean bases, UFO military bases in North Carolina. Back with more of the conspiracy show. Don't go away. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Mary Joyce stays with us. Give us the website, Mary. Um, I'm the editor of SkyshipsOverCashers.com, and we deal with lots of cutting-edge subjects, uh, including UFOs, underground bases, Cherokee Little People, Bigfoot. There's just a whole lot that goes on around here. So, you, you, based on your research, you suspect that, that Perry, this new Area 51, is a joint U.S. military alien um, um, installation, correct? There is some kind of cooperation going on, or we wouldn't see so much UFO activity around it. Um, so, yes, I do believe there is some kind of cooperation there. The first person who told me about the facility <clears throat> had grown up in uh, a family that was under guard, so to speak, uh, because her father was had high security clearance in a nuclear warhead production facility. And everybody that worked there was under uh, strict codes of ethics. They could not talk to anybody about it. Uh, uh, this is actually a woman, and she tells about experiences in the 1950s when she was a child and she said she even knew of some people who had uh, spoken about things that were going on at this base. And she said uh, they would have heart attacks and turned out to be vegetables. So people were very, very much intimidated. And she had kept this to herself and perhaps her husband and immediate family literally for decades. When I met her, she was, I believe, in her late 60s. I think I got the, the years right. And... Um, she and her husband kept coming into the, the place where I worked, and they would kind of gingerly start conversations about UFOs with me because they knew about the website. And um, then they started telling me about UFO experiences uh, in the Smoky Mountain National Park. And I said, well, why don't we get together? I think you've got a story to share. And so I eventually met them at their camper trailer, expecting to do a story about UFOs and what they had done was they had been checking me out for months because they wanted to tell about the Perry facility and they wanted to make sure they could trust me so that's how I be that's when I first learned about Perry and what was going on there and that uh, initial contact is one of the ones that told me that this is a facility that's six stories deep and she said they have 
uh, electromagnetic ability to wipe out people's memories. That kind of stuck in my head ever since then. Um, and you begin to put these pictures together. And once I put her story on the website, um, I then got a letter um, that was hand-delivered to me uh, by another man. Uh, actually, he had a go-between do it. But he wrote me uh, a letter confirming what this woman had said. And uh, he was real precise, and I, I printed the, his whole letter uh, in my book about the underground facilities. And he just wanted to verify that the lady was telling the truth. And um, I knew from other connections that he indeed had high security clearance. But he was paranoid, too. He did not deliver that message himself to me. He had uh, somebody that we both know uh, deliver it to me. Um, and he was just very, very cautious because they can lose their careers. They can lose, I don't know what all they can lose, but they're very, very scared of letting it be known that they're the ones that are providing the information. He could be your Bob Lazar. Kind of, yeah. Yep. Has and you know, you know what they do to these people? You know about Bob Lazar. I mean, they tried to wipe him out like he never existed. Right. And that's a real common thing. If they don't wipe you out and destroy all your records, uh, they will start putting on information that makes you look like a very dubious character and not trustworthy. And um, uh, that seems to have been done a lot. How about in this particular case? Has your source, has his, has his record been expunged? This guy is still functioning. He's okay, so we haven't blown his cover. Has he talked to you about, um, you know, back engineering, aliens, spacecraft, anything like that? Um, he wouldn't go beyond what uh, his letter said. And, I mean, if you're interested, I can read the letter to you. If, if not, I don't have to. But uh, If you have uh, it handy, Mary, that would be terrific. Uh, and this is word for word. And he had some things in parentheses, uh, which I explain in the book, are not my parentheses. They, he added them himself in the letter. He even went to the extreme of changing his style of writing so it couldn't be, uh, you know, we all have a fingerprint in the way we write, and he wanted to make sure there was no fingerprint of his speech patterns in the letter. Okay, here goes. It says, I must remain anonymous, though I have adequately presented myself to an individual who is known to your website and can vouch for my truthfulness. I have an awareness due to the nature of my work and associations of highly classified <clears throat> excuse me, and ongoing government military projects and capabilities. <clears throat> I can confirm the truthfulness of the information in a recent article on your website about a secret underground facility beneath the Balsam Mountains of Western North Carolina. The entrance to the facility is hidden beneath the benign-looking Pisgah Astronomical Research Institute known as Perry. You might say it's hidden in plain sight because surface equipment and buildings are available to astronomy students and research specialists. The underground facility is at least city-sized and has supporting infrastructure, water, electricity, roads, etc. However, the facility is in a remote area and well-guarded. Outsiders only are welcome <clears throat> by appointment or by special invitation. Um, what has and is going on beneath Perry is highly classified and possibly only part of a large network of such capabilities and otherwise known as black projects. 
I am providing this information in a very very circuitous fashion for my own protection, yet I wish to help shine light on the top secret activity in, around, and under the mountains of Western North Carolina. Hmm. Uh, When was that letter dated? Um, I put, uh, this book went to press in 2015. It was not too long before it went to press. Uh, the date, um, there was no date on the, uh, letter. He simply sent the note. Okay, so sometime between 2015. Sometime between 2015. He gave me the letter on January 18th, 2010. Oh, okay. And have there been further correspondence? Uh, no, he doesn't want that to, to happen either. Because every time he would have contact with me, it would put him at risk of possibly being discovered. So that, uh, I've not gone any farther with him. But, but Perry isn't the only, uh, underground base in North Carolina. You mentioned another one underneath the Smoky Mountains National Park. I've written about five of them. One is the Perry. The other one is underneath the Smoky Mountain National Park. One is under Sugarloaf Mountain, which is just west of Chimney Rock State Park. Again, here in, it's near Lake Lure. Some of your uh, listeners may be familiar with those two things. There's one in uh, the Linville Gorge. Um, so they're they're uh, in many places. And and are they acknowledged military bases, or are some of them oh. absolutely just off the off the charts? They're off. They're not on the maps. And it's very odd because uh, one of the closest towns to the Perry facility is a town called Roswell. Uh, no, <laughs> oh, it isn't Roswell. It's Rosman. And uh, people, including myself, have seen uh, military vehicles uh, in that area, and there's no military base in the area. So why do we keep seeing military bases or military equipment? And and the... Uh the other bases, UFO sightings, are they are they rampant around these other these other bases? Are they more sightings than than usual? It seems to depend on what's going on. For example, you mentioned the uh, facility beneath the Smoky Mountains National Park. Um, there was that may be the most recent one within uh, Western North Carolina uh, because from like 2010. To 2013, there was lots of evidence of construction being done uh, beneath the ground, and um, we pretty much have been able to zero in on where the entrance to this facility is, and I have maps and things of that nature in my book. Um, But again, I've been fortunate to get uh, retired military witnesses, and he, one of them, even got uh, photos of these. Car- huge cargo planes with their tailgates still opening or open, coming out from uh, where this entrance would be, um, and so the plane is real low and it hasn't even had time to close uh, the cargo gate, which is at the rear end of the cargo plane. And there have been uh, osprey and uh, helicopters and sky cranes. Uh, they they have seen. Um, uh, it would be like the size of a railroad car being uh, dropped by parachute from these vehicles. Uh, so most of what's, you know, during this construction time, there was lots and lots of these, this kind of activity. 
uh, we don't see as much anymore because I suspect they have most of it constructed now. Hmm. But they were closing roads. Uh, there's a road called, it's got an Indian name, it's Hindtugi Road. Um, it was closed for two years, and they said it was because they um, there had been a washout and things of this nature. Well, there was no evidence of any kind of a washout. They had just closed that road off, period. And um, one of the things that's proof that it wasn't a washout is that a reservoir in that area uh, was completely bone dry. And later, <clears throat> people found uh, a 50,000-gallon water tank mostly submerged where the reservoir had once been, and there were pipes going from that tank uh, going down into the ground. So obviously they were using that water um, as a supply of, uh, of water for whatever was going on beneath the place. Mary and Joyce, a, sorry, Mary Joyce yeah. is with us, the author of Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina, and uh, she has identified at least five. Could there be more? Um, I think they're all connected underneath the ground. Uh, the reason I say this is that uh, Perry, for example, is along the Balsam Mountain Ridge, and at certain times uh, people have reported uh, major mechanical sounds from beneath the ground or uh, grinding or different kinds of sounds that only last for a while and then it stops. Um, it, we pretty much have concluded that they were using those underground boring machines to create, um, uh, I don't know, transportation tunnels between the different facilities. And there's evidence of this kind of thing all through the spine of the Appalachian Mountains going up uh, close to uh, D.C. And I'm sure you're aware of what I believe is the oldest underground facility that is now open to the public. And it was beneath the um, Greenbrier Hotel in right on the border of Virginia and West Virginia. Well, let's talk and, about uh, that when we come back, if we can. Uh, Mary Joyce is with me on The Conspiracy Show. Underground military bases hidden in North Carolina. She's with me for the full two hours. Back with more. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Mary Joyce, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. You were talking about uh, a Greenbrier. Uh, this is a... Um uh, well, it's essentially it's a bunker, is it not, the, in, under the National Military Command uh, in Northern Virginia? 
it's uh, right on the border of West Virginia and Virginia in the mountains. Uh, it's beneath or within um, the Greenbrier Hotel, which to this day is um, a very upscale place where people go. Uh, it has the golf courses and things of that nature. But now you can actually get tours of the bunker facility that was hidden for so many years uh, beneath that hotel. Have you and been? It, it was quite a. Uh, it's it, it was quite extensive, and um, I think if you type in, I can't swear to this, but on our search bar, if you type in um, the Greenbrier, you might get to the article that we've done on it, and you can see photos um, of that facility. So you've been, have you? Uh, I have not been on the tour. I have been uh, by the hotel. What's interesting is we, um, a friend and I, went up to... Um, visit some of the hot springs. So we didn't have any of this in mind. And as we were driving and approaching, um, what are they called? The Hampstead? Homestead? Homestead, which is another um, upscale resort that's been around forever. And we saw this long line of black uh, vehicles. Um, and we followed them. And they went in. Uh, the back entrance to the homestead. So to this day, those places are still being used for meeting places for people out of Washington, D.C. Why do you, sus- why do you suppose they opened this one up to the public? Why would they, why so would they tip out, their hand? So out of date, which to me just gives us proof that whatever they've got built now has to be so much further developed uh, if they're letting us see these facilities. Uh, I think the word got out um, you know, through the rumor mill that this existed and to the point where they couldn't deny that it existed and they just decided to uh, acknowledge it since it was so out of date. Now, have you coordinated at all with Peter Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center? I'm just wondering if you might be able to find that those particular underground bases, whether there might they may be a, a real cluster there of UFO sightings. I mean, he would be able to provide that data, I'm sure. That's really a good idea. And no, I haven't. And yes, I should. How's that for an answer? <laughs> or move on, I suppose. But uh, I mean, I, I, I was thinking of Peter because he's a good friend of the show. And uh, uh, I just think his work is great. It's terrific. And it's what a database he has there. Um, what sorts of... Uh, we, do, we do send him our notices. We do uh, send out notices to people who are interested whenever we update the website. And when we have new postings regarding sightings, we do always send it to them. What sorts of craft are seen in and around these bases? What do they look like? Um, let's. The ones that I've, I've heard about as close as possible to the um, facilities are more like the saucer-shaped ones. The stereotypical one, you know, that it's sort of like the old Billy Meyer type images. Sure, sure. Uh, that would be the most common. But we have seen all different kinds of UFOs in this area, and the 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 appearance is, you know, they're very very different. Uh, the most different ones have been seen over cachers. We've gotten photos of them. They're on our under um, Skyship photos at the moment. I can't tell you what year it is. Maybe two or three years back. But there were UFOs that looked like asteroids. 
and they were close enough so that the photos give you a whole lot of detail. Uh, but they wouldn't, they, they could stay suspended in one place and then move. They didn't move like an asteroid would move. Uh, then we've had UFOs that are cigar shaped. We've had them where, um, they're like, more like a, a decorative cake where you see multiple layers. Uh, we see the ones that are spheres. Um, we've seen a lot of phenomena which just makes you wonder. There was one, and again, we were able to get pictures of it, where you see, I think it was four lights in the sky, and then they kind of morphed. Um, as they morphed, they went from being like UFOs, uh, then they turned into letter, or numbers in the sky, and we had the numbers 16, 19, uh, in the sky above Tashers, and then it morphed and disappeared. Um, so the kind of things that we see in the sky are quite strange. Some of it I describe as like finger painting, uh, where obviously they're moving so fast that within one camera shot, uh, the movement is caught and it will be in colors. And it almost looks like somebody's dipped their um, a finger in a bowl of rainbow paint and just swirled it on the in the in the sky. So the phenomena is quite different. I cannot explain why we have so many different kinds here, uh, but they definitely are not all the same. Mary Joyce stays with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarrett. And sometimes corporations. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Joyce is with us talking about underground bases, UFO military bases uh, in uh, uh, North Carolina, her home state, not her home state, her adopted state. Uh, what what brought you to North Carolina, by the way? Um, that kind of gets into my strange life. Um, I've always felt like I was drawn to come up here. And actually, in a spiritual message, I was told, don't worry about it. When it's time for you to go there, it will be really, really clear. Well, at the time, I was living on a lake in the Ocala National Forest, 
and we had a huge drought and um, I decided to apply to teach at the Cherokee Indian Reservation which is very close to where I am um, and we took it as a sign because the place where I lived when we returned to it after being at this interview the um, there were four ways into the forest where we were and I literally saw one tree fall and cr cross one road it eventually all but one road had been um, blocked by trees falling because it was so dry. So you have sandy soil and not water and the trees come down. And I just took that as a sign, well, I think it's time to go to North Carolina. So coming up here had nothing um, to do with UFOs, though I had seen UFOs in Florida when I lived down there. I used to live uh, on the beach between Patrick Air Force Base and the Kennedy Space Center and um, saw a number of UFOs down there. The, the, the military bases, uh, do you suspect that they are to be found across the United States in remote, very remote locations? For example, uh, are we likely to see underground bases where, wherever we have large national parks, forested areas? Uh, I believe it's to their advantage where they can't be observed easily. Um, and that's that would be true of all these places. And if they will, the the government will actually buy up land to create buffer zones. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, there is a facility beneath um, Sugarloaf Mountain, which is near the Chimney Rock facility in Lake and the government has brought up uh, bought additional uh, parkland so that this place can only be approached by one road. It can't be approached from, let's say. Well, just one road in now. And uh, the first time I was there, that road was a hairpin gravel road all the way up. Uh, not easy to travel. Um, it has since been um, upgraded. Uh, huge electrical cables have been put in. Um, we actually talked to people who had seen as many as 20 of those huge electric trucks at one time on that road and again it was a narrow gravel road originally and they installed cables that were like 10 inches in diameter that went up the mountain and at the top of the mountain there are only eight houses so there is no excuse for having that kind of uh, electrical power being sent up there and when you get up to the top then those cables go under the ground um, so I don't know where I started out with all that, but well, uh, well, I was asking, a glimpse of yes. the electrical power that's there. I was asking about the remote location of these underground bases because that, that leads me to this question, and that is the work of David Politas. Uh, of Canada for or um, missing 411, this series of uh, books detailing all of the people that go missing in national parks uh, across North America. So I'm just wondering if there might be a connection between these UFO underground bases and all of these missing persons in national parks. And of course, the National Park Service is very, very reluctant to release data on this. Um, I don't know what his final conclusion is about all these disappearances. I know that at least at one point he was trying to blame them on the Bigfoot, which I totally, totally disagree with. Um, but the more I learn, um, the more I get into this weird world I really didn't wish to have existed, but it does. And 
um, the Nazis are still operating, as I said, in Antarctica, and they continue to use slave labor. So where is the slave labor coming from? Um, that's one thing. They, uh, another thing is that there is uh, a group of um, aliens that some, the little people call the dominators, and they're very afraid of the dominators. And they say the dominators refer to the earth as the farm, uh, and that this is, they like to, it's so gross, but they like to eat people, especially um, young children, which might explain why some, so many young children are disappearing. But we've had uh, an, 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 a whole lot of uh, people with special expertise, medical people, uh, scientists, who have also disappeared. And perhaps they're being taken so that their knowledge can be used uh, for these unknown powers. So let's, in the time that remains, talk about the Nazi connection. These Antarctic bases, these joint Nazi uh, alien bases uh, that uh, perhaps are being uncovered now because of uh, the melting ice, which is perhaps why so many dignitaries are flocking down there to see what's going on. But what do those bases in the Antarctic uh, that were uh, sort of joint Nazi bases, joint Nazi alien bases uh, that were begun in the 1940s. What do they have to do with North Carolina in 2018? What do the, what do the Nazis have to do with North Carolina in this uh, day and age? One of the if people want to get into a lot of good research. William Tompkins, uh, who died, I think, about a year ago, uh, was involved in... Uh, Navy intelligence uh, during World War II. He was also involved at NASA at the very highest levels and worked with people like uh, Werner von Braun. Um, his book is just jam-packed with uh, information. So anybody who um, wants to, to really delve into this, he's a good source. And he is one of the people that I found very credible who talks about this reptilian uh, Nazi alliance and uh, uh, he, when you get that information from somebody with his kind of credentials, you have to take a big gulp and go, oh my goodness, this could really, really be true. Um, the article that we have um, called Antarctica Reptilian Aliens Help Nazis, uh, I do quote uh, William Tompkin to some degree uh, regarding that. Uh, so your listeners might, when they have a few moments, enjoy taking a look at that article. But but could you maybe just maybe give us a, a bit of a synopsis? The the Nazis have they supposedly lost World War II, but I don't think they really lost the big battle. There is evidence of Nazi influence in our corporations and in our government. Um, I did a story on William Pollock, who was another man with excellent credentials, uh, who's no longer living. Uh, he did the secu high security um, designs for Air Force One and for Area 51. And he um, had an experience where he was at Tonopah, which is a little bit more unknown to the public than Area 51, but they're both in Nevada. And he was called <clears throat> to a meeting and um, at Tonopah, and the building that they met in, this airplane came in and cruised right up to the door. A man got out with a bodyguard and I think a briefcase 
and he was dressed in um, like high style European uh, clothing and shoes. This man went to the back of the meeting, listened to everyone report on what they had been doing. Um, at the very end, he spoke just briefly. He was never identified, but when he did speak, it was in high German. Um, Bill Pollack uh, came to the awful conclusion that uh, the Nazis are very much involved in what's going on in our country today. And he says it's much more extensive uh, than what we realize. Which is, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Joseph Farrell has written a great deal about this, the Nazi international, how the, the German army surrendered at the uh, close of the Second World War, but the, the third, the, the officers of the Third Reich, the, the, uh, the vice chancellor, etc., never did. So the Nazis never surrendered. So the idea, I guess, is that they moved their base of operation uh, from Berlin uh, to where? South America, the Antarctic, and eventually to the United States. That's my understanding also from all the research I've done. You're right. So as we wrap up Hour 1 uh, here, Mary, uh, what is the takeaway here in terms of these underground bases, and what are you going to be doing uh, next in terms of investigating these bases? I should mention one more. I, I told you that there were five, and the one that I forgot to mention is under Mount Mitchell. So for those who are interested, there's one under the Pisgah Astronomical Research Institute, one under uh, uh, Glenville or Linville Gorge, one under Sugarloaf Mountain near Chimney Rock, one under the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and one under Mount Mitchell. So those are the ones that I have been fortunate enough to uh, meet people usually with high security clearance, who just want to blow the whistle on what's going on. So um, I'm really bad. I start walk, uh, talking, and then I forget what your original question was. That's all right. Um, I, I, just, I guess what's, well, what's the next stage here in terms of your investigating these bases? Are you looking for more whistleblowers? Um, I wasn't looking for any of these whistleblowers. Um, they all contacted me initially uh, because of the website. And so they have really sought me out, and most of them have spent time checking me out before they decide to share their stories. Um, so I don't know if I can make the stories happen, uh, because up to this point, I have not been the one who's made them happen. All right. Once again, uh, the website is skyshipsovercashiers.com, skyshipsovercashiers.com. And um, uh, where can people get a copy of the book, Underground Bases Hidden in North Carolina? Um, I have all the books available on Amazon. And it's the Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains. There's one, Cherokee Little People Were Real. Um, and the third one is totally different, and it's called Tangible Evidence of Jesus left behind for us to find. They're all available on Amazon. If you want to learn a little bit more about each one, go to the website, skyshipsovercashers.com, and do a quick scroll to the bottom of the editor's corner, and there'll be a little summary of each of the books. Mary, you good to talk Cherokee little people when we come back? Uh, if you like. Excellent. All right, stand by. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to everyone who's tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hello to all of you who listen to the podcast, those of you who subscribe to the Conspiracy Show app, and of course those who listen and watch on the Conspiracy Show YouTube channel. Please hit the red sub button if you haven't already done so. The live stream, incidentally, the YouTube live stream will resume Sunday, September the 16th. Mary Joyce is with us. She is the founder of the website SkyshipsOverCashier.com, and she's an author, researcher, living in North Carolina. Uh, in Hour 1, we talked underground military bases and UFO bases. This hour, the Cherokee Little People legend. Mary Joyce, welcome back to Hour 2 of The Conspiracy Show. How are you holding on there? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Terrific. SkyshipsOverCashiers.com. Uh, dot com. Just give us a little tour of that website. What are we going to find there? Uh, let me just kind of read off the headings on the home page. We have different categories. We have Editor's Corner, where I do videos and podcasts, and there's information about my books and things of that nature. Uh, we have um, Skyship Photos. We have uh, Deep Throat Testimonies, which come from uh, people who are usually in high places and do not want to be identified. Uh, we also have a section called Global Links and Undercover Operations. Uh, undercover, uh, undercover Operations and Deep Throat Testimonies are kind of related um, because many times we're dealing with the people who do not want to be identified. Uh, we know who they are, but uh, they don't want it out there publicly. Um, we have Global Links. Um, we have Cosmic Miracles. Uh, we have one on health and safety, and um, I think I've covered most of them there. And, and one that's called Skyship Articles, because that just is a catch-all where we have cutting-edge topics that uh, are cutting-edge but no, don't necessarily fit into one of our categories. Right. Now, how is it that people have come to you now, whistleblowers, people who want to talk about underground bases and so forth, but how is it that you have sort of established yourself as the go-to person in North Carolina you know, people trust you. They want to reveal these things to you. For many, many years, I worked for corporations and big newspapers and things of that nature. When I came to North Carolina, I just took those hats off and I started managing a health food store because certainly I could help people that way and I'm interested in that kind of thing. But it also gave me time and energy and freedom to do some of my own projects uh, that you simply don't have time for when you're working for a major corporation. Uh, so that put me in a position that I didn't expect would have so many benefits. When you're working in a health food store, people uh, open up and talk to you. They see you on a regular basis. They, ha they develop a trust. And I can honestly say that uh, many of the stories initially started because of that little management uh, job at a health food store. Uh, that's how I first learned about the little people. That's how I first learned about the underground bases. I don't know if that's how I first heard about Bigfoot or not. That probably came in some other way. But people want to trust you. So that's where the trust started. And uh, 
when I was dealing with the Cherokee little people and talking to the Cherokee, they more than other people uh, aren't going to open up with you unless there's been some sense of trust that's been developed. Otherwise, they're simply not going to talk to you. When I was doing the, um, uh, the book on the Cherokee little people, I was interviewing old timers, most of them in their uh, probably 80s when I was interviewing them. And when I realized that nobody had their stories, I decided I needed to write them down and preserve them before all these people had, you know, would pass on. If I hadn't gotten in with one of the old timers, I never would have met all the rest. I just showed up on somebody's doorstep and said, I hear you know about these little people and these little people tunnels. They probably would not have talked to me because the old mountain people and the Cherokees aren't exactly anxious to talk to you. Right. So let's get into the Cherokee little people. And the book is Cherokee little people were real. These old timers that you talk about, these were people that were working, uh, building a university campus, correct? It was back right after World War II, and the first man that uh, opened up to me was well-known in the community. He was in his 80s. He had been a World War II hero, had survived the uh, death camp uh, march, uh, had been a pastor in the area for like 40-plus years. He was highly regarded. And uh, again, I met him at this health food store, and we were talking about the little people, at which time I just kind of dismissed the little people as just you know, old Indian tales. And he said, no, there were really little people. And um, he said that when he was a young man, uh, he was helping with the construction at Western Carolina University. And when they would cut into what supposedly was virgin soil, uh, and this, this soil on the campus is this dense red clay type of soil. And these little tunnels uh, would be like three and a half feet high, um, typically, um, they would be square cut, but they would have a rounded arch at the top, uh, which would make the tunnel more stable. And they would find these when they were putting in sewer lines. They would find them when they were constructing new buildings. And, um, you know, these, these, uh, people were many of them in some aspect of construction. And, uh, so one of them would lead me to another one. And I had many, interviews on my days off on Saturday around kitchen tables, uh, hearing the stories. And I don't know if any, I think one of the people I interviewed is still living today. So I'm so glad that I did that. And how did they put two and two together that these tunnels were somehow connected to this legend of the Cherokee little people? Did they find fossils? Did they find bits of pottery? They found skeletons. One of the professors uh, in the science department for many years, kept what he called a child's uh, skull on his desk like a decorative paperweight. And he said it came, it must have come from the Indian mound that was uh, demolished. Well, um, I think it was a high school English teacher was there one day and picked up this little skull and said, this is not a child's skull. It has all of its wisdom teeth. And so that was a type of evidence also. So when you combine the, t- uh, the tales of the Cherokee about the little people, which you still hear today, and uh, then the little skeleton and the vast network of uh, tunnels found over uh, you know, quite a large area, um, it becomes rather convincing. What happened to these skeletal remains? Were they stored away somewhere? This is the first time that I've been able to answer this question this way. The last I heard 
was that some of these things were kept in like um, a forensic vault at the um, university. And then I uh, ran into an anthropology student at Dunkin' Donuts and got into a conversation with her. And uh, she said that within a, a year or maybe two years ago, uh, they had sent all of these things off to the Smithsonian, at which time I just groaned because um, I've done reviews on two books. Um, I can't come up with the titles right now, but they're both about um, the tremendous evidence that giant skeletons have been found all over the country uh, going back to the, I think, 1800s. And these were so often shipped off to the Smithsonian and never seen again, never heard of again. And so it appears at this point that the Smithsonian um, chooses to add, they, they want to keep history as we have been taught. They don't want things to change. And so things that are like an anomaly that don't fit in with their idea of history, uh, those things get bar buried. And it's very, very sad. So when I heard that these things had been shipped off to uh, the Smithsonian, I thought, oh, we'll probably never see those again. And uh, that's regrettable. And any idea as to how many skeletons were shipped off to the Smithsonian of these little people? I do not know. I only concretely know about the, uh, the little skull with the uh, wisdom teeth uh, that multiple people had seen. So that is, you know, something I absolutely can confirm. Uh, another person who graduated from the anthropology department a number of years ago um, said that they also had two uh, giant skeletons in that forensic repository at the, at the campus and that they had six toes. So um, apparently there was quite a bit uh, that was sent the, to the Smithsonian, and I'm sure those giants went the way of the other giants back into some deep closet at the Smithsonian. Right, right. What about tools or other artifacts uh, affiliated or associated with these little people? The closest thing I know of is a man that I interviewed who is here in Silva. He has his own construction business, and he was uh, involved in a construction project where they had to literally cut away part of a mountain uh, so they could get enough level area to build this facility or building. And in the process, they found these little tunnels. And he said that the uh, you could see tool marks on the inside walls of the um, uh, these little tunnels that uh, you know had been used like a, almost like a, a fork type thing that had been used to uh, um, finish off the walls of the uh, tunnels. And he said the tunnels were as fresh as if they had just been made and they had cut into a mountain that had been there forever uh, but the soil was still damp and moist and uh, you know it wasn't full of cobwebs or anything that would indicate it had been neglected for a long time so these old timers these are not Cherokee what is the legend of the little people that comes down from the Cherokee the Cherokee call them the moon people the Cherokee originated in the Great Lakes area when they moved to the North Carolina mountains they found these little gardens that were well tended, but they didn't see any evidence of people. And then eventually they saw these little people that would come out from the ground and tend the gardens by the light of the moon, which is why they were originally called moon people. Um, but then, um, you know, they 
eventually got the name of the Cherokee Little People. Um, I don't think all the little people look the same. Uh, the ones in this area are described as looking more like the Cherokee people that we see today, living today. And if I were to rewrite my book, I probably would have to change the title because uh, I've talked to many people who um, still believe and have reported seeing or interacting with um, uh, little people to this day. Ah. So, uh, All right. What other details can you give me about their physical description? Okay. Here in this immediate area, we have the ones that look like the um, Cherokee. Then there was a type that had red whiskers, um, and from what I can piece together, must look more like the Irish leprechaun. The Cherokee people did not like those, and they would try to kill the the ones with the red whiskers. They only liked the ones that looked like the like themselves. Um, and then there's the reports of those moon people um, having a blue tint to their skin, perhaps because they were underground all the time. Um, uh, they also had the bigger eyes, which makes them sound alien. So those are three descriptions. The only ones that are remaining today, which indicates that they may still be alive in, in the most remote areas of the mountains, are the ones that look like the Cherokee. All right, we'll take a time out. Mary Joyce stays with us. Cherokee Little People Were Real. And the website, skyshipsovercashiers.com. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Mary Joyce stays with us. A remarkable legend, the Cherokee Little People, although we're probably talking about more than one, I guess, species of Little People. We have the Moon People that have a bluish tint. We have the Cherokee Little People that resemble the Cherokees, albeit in miniature form. And then we have, well, you describe them as resembling sort of leprechauns. They have red hair, red whiskers. What is it about that particular group did the Cherokee find so disagreeable that they would try to kill them? I do not know the answer to that, and I have asked it, and I, I just do not know how to answer it. Um, it is interesting that, um, I'll, I'll tell you one more thing about this. We had a major flood here in the 1940s, and I'm talking a uh, historic flood. And there was this little five-year-old boy who found uh, what he called a lead head. Uh, it was an oval-shaped uh, medallion. Uh, they got washed away um, near a church on the old Tuckasegee River. And um, it has like a leprechaun face on each side of it. And he called it his lead head because it was very heavy for its size. So it was only about an inch and a quarter um, in length. And it truly looked like a leprechaun. And in my book about uh, Cherokee Little People Were Real, I have a picture of that medallion that he found. Uh, next to a, a drawing of a um, um, 
Irish leprechaun, and believe me, they look similar, the same kind of long turned up nose and the pointed ears. So um, the diversity with the little people is uh, great. And did they all create the same sort of tunnel type structure? They all seem to have uh, a place underground. And uh, you and I briefly spoke about uh, my being contacted by somebody in eastern Tennessee who had uh, read my books and seen the website, and he said he had little people living on his land. Um, I called him up, and I talked to him, and he sounded sane, so I figured he wasn't just giving me some kind of a BS story. And two of us from the website, Evelyn Gordon and I, went to his land, and he has beautiful land that's been in his uh, family for generations. I think it's about 200 acres. Uh, it's both rolling hills by a river and a whole lot of wooded area. And when we went there, uh, he showed me the entrance uh, to where the little people go underground. Um, he talked about many things. I don't know how much you want to get into it, uh, but these little people look more like um, uh, Europeans. He said they wore uh, leather pants that were more like the Lederhosen and Lederhosen. And he said the shirts were like the military uh, wore in the West with the double-breasted buttons. Um, he talked about them living to be like uh, uh, 200 years old um, and that the elderly people often walked with a walking stick. And as he's taking me back in the woods so I can get to where the entrance is to this place, he said, now look there, and along this narrow little tiny footpath, there are these little square imprints in the ground. And he said they have um, square cut walking sticks that the uh, elderly uh, little people use when they're walking in the woods. And uh, then we also found a, it was difficult to see, but we found a little footprint. Um, lots of things that just sounded very interesting. This man uh, comes from a line of uh, Uchi Indians. The Uchi Indians had pretty much disappeared. The original ones were described pretty much like looking like Europeans. And at the time I was doing the research on this, um, I'm always looking for other ways to confirm what I'm hearing. And in the process of looking for the confirmation, there was a brand new um, report that had been published by a man whose name escapes me right now, but he is an expert in southeastern Indians. And in this article, <clears throat> which he had just recently completed research on, there was a major flood in Europe, especially uh, in Ireland, um, many, maybe thousands of years ago. And the people fled by boat, and some of them ended up in the Savannah uh, River area. And then they went up the river into eastern Tennessee. Um, it, it, we've heard for all of our lives about the, the uh, Irish having these little people. So maybe uh, when they fled Ireland, some of the little people came with them. Uh, this man who looks totally white now, uh, but he, his father and his grandfather, all were able to communicate with the little people. Um, um, mostly telepathic, but this man always carried three by five cards in his old pickup truck that he would use to travel the land, and um, he would sometimes write a question or a note 
print it on a three by five card and leave it by their cave. And when he would come back, uh, there would be brief um, printed answers to his questions. But on one of the cards, which I still have, he gave it to me, um, it it says, please um, talk, you know, by tel telepathy uh, rather than writing. They didn't really like to write, um, but they were able to print in English. Interesting. And and what, uh, my gosh. Da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> just... It seems like all I'm doing is telling you things that sound like science fiction or fairy tales, and yet there seems to be enough evidence to back up so much of this. And the world that we live in, if we just look at what's around us on a daily basis, it's so mundane with what's really going on at deeper levels, no matter what the subject is. Well, you mentioned earlier these tunnels were about three and a half feet tall, so we're looking at maybe some sort of a humanoid that's two and a half, three feet tall, perhaps. How could they avoid detection for so long? I've been here for 20 years now. Uh, I've been in areas where they are. Uh, it's, it's usually very wild um, areas where people just don't go. Um, so, for example, on the Cherokee Reservation, uh, the most reports about the little people is in an area called uh, Big Cove. And that is the most remote section on the reservation. And you have to go way, way up the mountain. Uh, and that's where people still uh, seem to interact with the, uh, with the little people. Uh, one woman, a young woman in her 20s, uh, that I met at a restaurant, got into a conversation with her. And um, again, eventually, after trust is built up, uh, I met with her, and she told me about when she was a kid, they were all playing hide-and-seek up near a trailer up in the Big Cove area where the family would go for um, picnics and, you know, uh, outdoor gatherings. And all the kids, including her, uh, were playing hide-and-seek. Well, she went to go hide in the um, bathtub of the trailer. And when she pulled back the curtain, there was a little... Uh, little person in there just grinning but great big grin of course it scared it to death but uh, um, nevertheless you still hear stories like that you also hear stories about people who actually still put food out for the little people and sometimes if they don't put it out um, the little people will start throwing stones on the rooftop just to remind them that they're there uh, which reminds me kind of a feral like our feral cat that keeps coming to our door uh, to let us know that it needs some food. Right, right. So you have managed to gain the trust of the Cherokee people in your your area. So do they all believe in, in little people? For them, it's just common sense? The only reason that they have been quiet about it for so many years is that the white culture would laugh at it. So they started stories like, well, if you talk about the little people, you're going to die, which is totally stupid because... Uh, one of the men that I interviewed about uh, the little people at the university, he was in his very late 80s when I met him. He had been talking about little people since he was seven years old. His father had um, uh, a mica mine, and um, four of the men that were working for his father went out um, again to work in the mica mine. And when they were digging, 
they were digging in one direction and they came across an old tunnel uh, that was running perpendicular to their tunnel and um, uh, they were the men were all excited came back to the house so as a seven-year-old boy he heard these men telling about finding about this little uh, tiny tunnel um, and he's been interested he was interested in, in little people all of his life because of that so clearly you don't die if you talk about little people right right there might have been some parents who used it as a way to keep kids from going too far sure little people might get you right right are there any stories of children being abducted by little people I hear about them historically I don't hear about any of that going on today so I guess the answer is I've heard it historically that's it what about photographic evidence ah we do have something I've been trying to get some kind of photographic evidence uh, the whole time I've been up here and, and learned about the little people. And one of the um, people who follows the website uh, called me up and was all excited because they had a web, um, what do you call it, a hunter's ca uh, camera stationed outside their place. Like a trail cam, and, uh, yeah, a trail cam. Yes, and apparently some kind of bird had triggered it. So what they found was in the background in the woods was what appeared to be a little person. And um, it, uh, you know, it looks like somebody from the backside. It, this picture was taken in August. It was hot. Uh, from what we can see, it looks like the little person was not wearing clothing. Um, and I don't know what to say. Um, uh, the people who got the photo wondered if maybe it was just a spirit they were seeing in the woods. And so I did an interesting experiment. I took that photo and turned it up to high contrast. And when you do that, uh, anything that's living goes from, let's say, white to a magenta color. So then by contrast, I did the same thing with ghost pictures. And when you do that with a ghost picture, they, the ghosts still stay, stay white. So this little figure in the woods went to magenta, which indicates it was a very living, breathing creature, not a, a spirit or ghosty kind of uh, figure in the woods. But that was 20 years in the making before we got that photo. They are elusive. That is posted on the website. I wish that my memory was good enough to tell you where everything is, but sometimes if you type in our search bar, um, photo, Cherokee, little person, you might get to it that way. All right, Mary, you stay with us, and we will uh, come back on the other side and talk some more about little people, and perhaps, time permitting, we'll get into Bigfoot. A lot of strange things going on in the great state of North Carolina. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. truth is not out there. It's right here. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarr. Mary Joyce stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking Cherokee Little People. The book is Cherokee Little People Were Real. You were talking about a photograph that you've posted on your website, skyshipsovercashiers.com, and people will just have to log on to the site and kind of dive deep into the site. They'll find it, no doubt. But after all these years, one photograph, any other compelling evidence, a footprint, a bone fragment that is, you know, hasn't been hidden by the Smithsonian, anything at all? I do have photographs of uh, the little footprint that was found when I was in eastern Tennessee. I guess that doesn't tell you very much, but it was pretty convincing because this piece of property is, you know, people just can't get to it. It's rolling land on one side, but the, the woods are not accessible to anybody but the people that own the land. So uh, I was very fortunate to be able to go back there, but all I came back with is photos. Oh, I should add this. I told you about the man carrying the three-by-five cards, and he would leave notes at the entrance to their cave. Yes. Well, every time that the little people would return the answer, they would write it on the back side of the card, and then they would leave it with a little tiny crystal uh, stone on top of it, which I thought was kind of interesting. Hmm. Do you have any of those crystal stones? I do, I do. The man was, uh, I had them stored in um, a container that he gave me that's uh, originally used for 9mm bullets. (laughs) And where do they find them? Do they mine these crystals? Is there anything unusual about the crystals? Uh, At certain places around the mountains you can find them. They were not huge or something that would be like a collector's item. Typically they would be like, um, I don't know, half-inch uh, in in length or maybe three quarters of an inch at the biggest. They were not polished or refined. They were just um, like fragments if you shattered something. Right, right. So they seem friendly enough, but it sounds all in all they just want to be left alone. Is that your assessment? Well, they're the ones that uh, were so uh, adamant. They wanted this man, uh, we called him Xander, wanted Xander to do something to protect them from and protect the world from the, what the people they call the dominators, which are apparently even worse than reptilians. Uh, uh, I don't know if, if they're the same as the draconians, or but they are very um, power-hungry and with almost like soulless evil creatures. And these little people are uh, very, very afraid of them. And uh, I think they're simply afraid they'll be eaten by them. Do you think these dominators are running these joint U.S. UFO bases in North Carolina and elsewhere? God, I hope not. How's that for an answer? Um, The most that I normally hear about are reptilians and greys. Those uh, people, including myself, who've had contact with uh, the ones that are more spiritually evolved, uh, that would fall more into the category of the Pleiadians or the Nordics. Um, they don't abduct people. They don't um, uh, terrorize people. Uh, they make contact telepathically with you. Uh, they only appear if it's really necessary, and it's done in a way that doesn't scare the you-know-what out of somebody. Um, the reptilians and the greys could care less, and they uh, traumatize many, many people and scare them to death. Um, and so, personally, I want nothing to do with them. Well, if we're talking about uh, Nazis or, you know, the next generation of Nazis running these these bases, 
uh, it would stand to reason that they would, you know, like attracts like. They would be cavorting, no. they would be cavorting with the reptilians or the draconians, don't you think? Uh, probably. That makes all sense. Uh, the reptilians seems to be for sure. Yes. The draconians or the dominators, I do not know if that's a class unto itself. I do not know if they're involved uh, with the Nazi operation or not. I just simply do not know. <clears throat> All right. We'll uh, take one final time out, come back. And, uh, Mary, maybe we can delve into some Bigfoot. How How is that? That'll work. Mary Joyce, SkyShipsOverCashiers.com, the website, Cherokee Little People Were Real, the book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. ships and sometimes corporations the conspiracy show with richard Serrett from zoomer radio you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard Serrett. heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 where there's smoke there's the conspiracy show with richard Serrett from zoomer radio Mary Joyce stays with us. One final segment. What a trooper she is, hanging in for the full two hours. We've covered a lot of ground, including some of it underground, the underground UFO bases. In Hour 1, we spent a good portion of Hour 2 talking about uh, the Cherokee Little People, the legend of the Cherokee Little People. In the time remains that remains, let's talk about uh, Bigfoot. Um, North Carolina, of course, the Smoky Mountains, the, the uh, uh, I believe it's the Green Mountain, no, the Blue Mountains in, in uh, North Carolina as well. Um, I mean, this must just be, uh, you know, Bigfoot Central. It's so uh, mountain, mountainous and remote. Uh, how, how does North Carolina stack up uh, with the rest of the country in terms of Bigfoot sightings? Uh, most of the activity that you hear about is certainly in the western part of the country, in Oregon and Washington and in the, in the western mountains. Um, but we have them here, too. And, again, like the little people, they're in the more remote areas. Um, they go to great lengths to uh, try to avoid us humans, though there are those who are able to make contact with them. We even did our own experiment here. Um, there was um, a place where the uh, Bigfoot were crossing on a regular basis. They would come down this very, very steep, steep mountain uh, where there were caves way back in there, and you had to be really, really a mountain climber to even get close to them. And they would come down and then cross to where there was a uh, there was a gravel road, and across the gravel road there was like an apple tree, which and they would go and get the apples. There was also a pond, which they would go down to the pond. So in that area, we started doing an experiment with food, 
and uh, we would put out uh, different kinds of food uh, in one particular spot just to see what they liked. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was, and they did come around. And what was interesting, at one point, the food was put into a, um, a beer cooler, one that would take hold of a six-pack, and the food was put in that, and the lid was just cockeyed a bit, and then it was left in front of a, like a tunnel through the laurel bushes. And uh, the Bigfoot was very cautious of putting its hands, apparently, in anything, and it um, would tip it over and get the things out. But unlike any other creature, it put the lid back on. Um, a bear or any other animal you might think of would never put the lid back after dumping out the food content. Um, another occasion, uh, a woman who lives in the area had her garbage and garbage bags ready to take out the next day. Because um, around here you have to take your garbage to the dump. You don't have garbage service. And um, when she got up the next morning, um, the garbage bag had been carefully untied and certain things taken out of it. Uh, again, that is not the behavior of a regular animal. A regular animal would have torn the bag open, but this was, you know, carefully untied. So there's no other people around, so we're left thinking that uh, uh, it was probably the Bigfoot. I think she also heard some Bigfoot sounds uh, that night, so that kind of made it kind of conclusive. And how about you? Any close uh, uh, encounters with, with Bigfoot? I have seen, uh, uh, well, I can tell you a couple things firsthand. One, I've seen the footprints, you know, fresh footprints, and some of those I've taken pictures and put them on the website under the category ETs, Bigfoot, and other beings. Um, then there was um, a mountain man, young man, probably in his 40s, uh, not an old mountain man, and he took me to a place where uh, he would go when he would hunt, and there was a cave where he said the Bigfoot would take shelter. And to get there, we went way up to the top of a mountain on a gra and we ended up on a gravel road. Then we walked about a half mile from the road uh, to where this cave was. When we first started walking into this, we, we heard this uh, sound that sounded like a bird but didn't really sound like a bird. And then further down the path in the direction we were headed, uh, there was an answer, the same kind of mechanical, kind of different um, bird sound. After that, everything went silent. And I, to this day, feel like one Bigfoot was on guard letting know the other ones know that there are some people headed in their direction. And uh, I saw the footprints there. I saw the caves. Uh, and again, those have been posted on, on the website. And how about the... Uh, I've, also lost, I've also lost some money on Bigfoot. Um, we... Uh, uh, we had a hair sample, a pretty good hair sample. And if people want to see that, just type in Valley of the Bigfoot. And that's a pretty complete story. Um, I sent some of that off to uh, a DNA lab. And um, all they could tell me was that the maternal side was uh, human. Uh, there was no nuclear DNA in uh, the sample that we had. Uh, if you followed the, the work of Dr. Melba Ketchum and some yes. other ones since then, yes. 
the uniqueness of the Bigfoot is found on the paternal side, which can only be found in the nuclear DNA. So in other words, you'd have to have the hair follicle in order to get that. It wouldn't be enough just to have the hair strands. Um, so we spent some money having that done. Another time, we found some very unusual poop beneath the, I believe I should call it scat, uh, <laughs> beneath this apple tree I've referred to. And since we'd seen so many Bigfoot prints in that area, we decided to send that again to uh, the DNA lab. Well, once again, I lost some money because um, it um, proved to be, I think, a white wolf or a white fox. I think it was a, or a gray fox. And um, so I have not done well in spending my money on, on DNA samples. I will be very cautious before I send it in. <laughs> well, don't be dissuaded. Keep keep uh, keep fighting the good fight. Um, and what about the uh, the the, the tales, uh, the legends of of Sasquatch having some psychic ability? You mentioned the little people communicating telepathically. We also hear this characteristic ascribed to Bigfoot. Big, what do you think of that? Bigfoot. Yes, I agree. Bigfoot uh, does. Um, you know, communicate that way. They also make uh, regular physical sounds. And again, in that ET and Bigfoot section that we have on the website, we have um, a really great recording. We don't get credit for it, but uh, uh, the Bigfoot is sounding like uh, a samurai warrior. And there are different words that have sometimes been picked up of different languages in uh, the Bigfoot language. And it's kind of fascinating to... Uh, to listen to that, uh, the man who did it, and I'm not going to be able to think of his name right now, but he uh, did um, voice analysis and things for the government when he worked, uh, you know, for the military, and has great credentials, and it's fascinating to hear it. Uh, so they communicate at two levels, both telepathically and in a very physical way. Uh, also, we hear about the connection or association between Bigfoot and UFOs. What can you tell me about that? Well, I can tell you that we are seeing the Bigfoot in the same areas that we see lots of UFOs. Uh, so there are people who, like um, Kiwani, who's done so much research, like a lifetime's worth of research on the Bigfoot, and he definitely makes the declaration that there is a connection. Um, I don't have anything firsthand that would be able, would allow me to definitely say that, except we see these two two things in the same area repeatedly. Do you care to speculate what might be going on? Are they hitching a ride? What's going on? Hmm, now we're playing guessing games. Um, there's, there's only theories out there. There's theories that uh, the Bigfoot are the, the eyes on the ground uh, or some in the, in the ships. Uh, that probably sounds as good as anything else. Um, perhaps the Bigfoot are simply being protected by the ships. Um, I don't know. What is it about North Carolina? Uh, I mean, there are certain locations around the United States. You know, we hear about Skinwalker's Ranch. I recently did a show on southwestern Pennsylvania. That seems to be a hot spot for paranormal activity. What is it about North Carolina, do you think? Um, I think that one, one possibility is the fact that beneath these mountains, there are caverns and caves. 
So those can be used or expanded on. The people who do the underground bases, perhaps they start with an underground cavern and then it expands from there. Um, the Bigfoot uh, often shelter in caves and uh, underground, so uh, you know it's a good survival type place. Um, there is a mountain here called Whiteside Mountain. It is a crystal mountain, and it is speculated that uh, uh, that's used as an omni by the by the ships that come in. Uh, and as you know, the crystal is used even to this day, I think, in computers and uh, electrical equipment of different kinds. So maybe it's the the minerals that are here. Um, and as with most things, there's probably more than one reason things happen. It's never just one thing usually. Hmm. And what are you working on now? What's uh, what's your next project? Well, the thing I'd like to tell your your listeners is that we posted a, a video. It's on the homepage. It's I think one, two, three, four. It's the fifth from the top right now on the right-hand side. We have something. See what's new on this website. Fifth item down, it's called Video Interview about the Big about Bigfoot Encounter. And it um, elaborates a bit on uh, what we uh, encountered uh, in the Valley of the Bigfoot. It is one of the more dramatic stories that we have with the Bigfoot. Um, and I think most people would find it very interesting. The original article can also be found just by typing in Valley of the Bigfoot. Finally, just tell me a little bit about uh, your book, Tangible Evidence of Jesus Left Behind, or Left Behind for Us to Find. What we've done is, um, it is information uh, about Jesus that goes beyond the Bible, and it's things that have been discovered by scientists and archaeologists, and just great um, evidence that's um, more like a detective uh, would be convinced of the information. Would that be? Would and that include so the? Sh- would that include the Shroud of Turin? We do cover that. That's just one of the things that we cover. We cover the Jesus family tomb, um, which again is probably I don't know if we have time to talk about that or not. But it's kind of interesting how um, concrete evidence is coming up for the man. There was a stop me if you want to go in a different direction. No, no, just keep um, going. We have a couple minutes here. Uh, archaeologists uh, found what they call the family tomb of Jesus and during uh, the time of Jesus uh, during a hundred year period they the Jews had a very unique burial custom which did not exist before and has not existed since and what they would do is outside the walls of Jerusalem they would cut a tomb for the family into the side of a, a mountain the center area would be like large square entrance type place and three walls would have niches in them. When somebody died, they laid them out in that big room, closed up the tomb until all the soft material had disappeared. They would come back a year later and put the bones in a a stone box called an ossuary. Then those ossuaries would be placed in the niches along the side of the big room. The most important person was buried to the right as you walked in the door. And uh, in that first niche, there are three ossuaries, all with inscriptions on them. One is Jesus, son of Joseph. One is um, the, the familiar nickname for Mary, um, and it's preceded by uh, the name Mar, which is for um, it's um, 
the equivalent of a lord for a woman. So she has a title. And so we have a Mary with a title in the same tomb with or niche with Jesus. And the third one is Judah, son of Jesus. In the other notches or niches, there are other family members that people would recognize the names from the Old Testament. Um, you know, like uh, there's one for his brother Joseph, who he called Josie. That was a nickname that Jesus gave him. Josie is inscribed on that one particular box, not the full name. That was not the custom. The custom at that time was to uh, do full names and no nicknames. So here are uh, two uh, nicknames that are used, one for Mary and one for uh, Joseph, the brother. Um, and they were nicknames that Jesus used for um, his family members. Fascinating. Well, next time we have you on, Mary, we'll delve into that in a little more detail. That's tangible evidence of Jesus left behind for us to find. And, of course, Cherokee little people were real. And uh, underground bases hidden in North Carolina. The uh, The website, again, is skyshipsovercashiers.com. Uh, Mary Joyce, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a joy to talk to you. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White. I'm back next week with Sue Lindauer to talk about 9-11 cover-ups. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home.